Well, good morning, Asbury Saints, under construction. <laughs> kind of sobering, isn't it? Think about the fact that uh, we have been given the privilege to actually understand that not through works of righteousness that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, we're being fitted for heaven. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a saint under construction. Go ahead. Yeah. Do you, do you really believe that about that person? Are you sure? Why don't you then uh, say to them, you know, you're looking good. You're looking good. So far, so good. So far, so good. The thing about Hebrews 11, which for me is so significant as we think about uh, this All Saints celebration, and we remember what God has done uh, throughout the generations, and then draw from that assurance that he who has done this good work before is in the process of doing it again, even now in us. And if Jesus tarries, has guaranteed that he will bring his work to completion at some grand celebration. That's what Revelation declares in the scripture that was read to us just a few moments ago. That we know that uh, one day there will be a grand celebration when all of us who have been given crowns will cast our crowns before him and will have the privilege of saying together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we'll celebrate together that he who, as Thessalonians declares it, has begun a good work is faithful and he has brought it to conclusion. Hebrews 11 is one of those wonderful illustrations of the fact that the ultimate means of scriptural communication and theological communication is in essence incarnation, right? We have all of this wonderful theology, all of this wonderful prophetic utterance in the Old Testament, and over and over again, despite the clarity of oral communication and despite the clarity of, of miraculous demonstration, we still did not get it. And so God knew that ultimately the best way to communicate the truth that God so loved the world, was to give us his only begotten son. And as Philippians 2 says, to call that son to, in essence, demean himself, to take on the form of human flesh, and being found in fashion as human, to humble himself and become obedient unto death. And so the best way that deep, profound theological truth is communicated seems to be when we see it as well as hear it. And that's what Hebrews 11 basically does for us. It communicates to us this reality that when we celebrate what God has done in the lives of those who have surrendered themselves to him by faith, that he will do his work in his way. Hebrews 11 is this wonderful museum, so to speak, of portraits of people, icons. I spent a lot of time in working in the Middle East as well as in, in uh, the Far East, as well as in Russia, working with Russian Orthodox and uh, Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholics and the iconic nature that is a part of that great tradition and is a part of our Protestant tradition as we celebrate All Saints Day is to remind us that God reveals himself best and clearest through incarnation. And so for me, this reality that I am going to know who God is, and particularly know best who Christ is in the lives of those that he's allowed me to be touched by and through whose lives he's made a profound difference. 
And that's what I want to share with you today. I told our chaplain that I was not prepared for a profound theological presentation today. Because All Saints, for me, is about story, about storytelling and incarnation. And for me, that story begins with a little couple who attended a small Bible college in southern Ontario, connected to the holiness movement denomination. They went there. Marion was called to be a missionary to China. And she was preparing. She'd completed her nurse's training and was going to be a medical missionary in China. That was her calling. But then the doors closed. Jim, who had come into faith through the Salvation Army movement and now was attending this Holiness Movement Bible College, felt a call to ministry. And when the missionary doors closed, Jim and Marion decided to marry. And under the tutelage and, uh, and modeling of Dr. W.J. Stonehouse, the father of Dr. Kathy Stonehouse, who has served in our faculty, they began to understand what it meant to be the incarnation of Christ. And so they graduated from that little Bible college and began to minister in the holiness movement denomination. That little denomination later merged with a couple of other holiness movements and became the Free Methodist Church in Canada. And they essentially were a pretty simple pair of folk. They believed that if you just lived Jesus and shared Jesus and modeled Jesus, that people would be brought to Jesus. And so their ministry was one that was often characterized by being in the smallest places. I don't think Jim and Marion ever pastored a church of more than 50 people. As a matter of fact, when I came across their path, they were pastoring two congregations in northern Canada, 100 miles south of Hudson's Bay in a gold mining community on the Quebec border. The one church uh, had about 40 Sunday morning, the other had about 20 Sunday morning. We used to joke that it was made up of two little old ladies and a peg-leg man, and their salary was $40 a week and all the moose meat you could eat. Those two churches were 40 miles apart, and they both had services on Sunday. And so they faithfully served that particular congregation. But Jim and Marion were also song evangelists. And they essentially had a ministry in the summer because their congregations were so small, the churches generally closed down in the summer. And they then traveled from camp meeting to camp meeting. And these were old-fashioned, shouting, I guess you could say uh, flag-waving holiness meetings, unlike anything I had ever seen. And Jim and Marion would travel from camp meeting to camp meeting all summer as song evangelists. And as I reflect back on their ministry this All Saints Day, there was one song that they sang that I think probably described the incarnational nature of their ministry better than other. It's called Little as Much When God is in It by Kitty Suffield, published in 1924. And I can still hear Jim and Marion have now got under their reward. They've now seen that which they embraced by faith has now become reality for them. But as I reflect on their ministry to me and to several others that we'll share in just a moment, this seems to be their theme song. This is the song that becomes the signature of an incarnational ministry for me. It says, in the harvest field now ripened, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. The refrain goes like this, and I can hear Marion. And Marion was not really the singer of the two, but she did her best. Jim was really the vocalist. As a matter of fact, Marion, uh, one time somebody described Marion as uh, uh, something that was said by uh, a pianist. He said, you know, Marion 
I play in the white keys and I play in the black keys, but sometimes you sing in the cracks between those keys. She was just always a little off. But even though she lacked the musical expertise, the power of the Christ in her allowed the resonance of these verses to take on a whole new sense of meaning. And here's the refrain. And so often Marion would say this, little is much when God is in it, labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. The second verse goes like this, in the mad rush of the Broadway, again a theological reference to the idea that narrow is the way to heaven and broad is the way that leads to destruction. In the mad rush of the Broadway, in the hurry and the strife, tell of Jesus' love and mercy, give to them the word of life. Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. One of the things that was so much a part of Jim and Marion's ministry was this reality that, that ministry didn't really depend on the number of people that they were ministering to because their ministry was really focused on one person at a time. And so they opened their homes and over the years of their ministry, they ended up taking in off the streets about 60, 60 young men and women, street kids, runaways, street prostitutes that came and lived in their home. Over 60 came to Christ. All of us but one came to faith and half of us today are, are in some kind of vocational Christian service because they believe that the best way to preach the gospel was to live the love of the gospel into the hearts and minds and hands of those that God would entrust to them. At 13, I had run away from home. My dad was an alcoholic, and I was on the streets of this northern Ontario mining town, and Jim and Marion found me and invited me into their home, and over the next five years, I was basically introduced to the person of Christ every single day, as Jim and Marion really embraced this idea that little is much when God is in it. And even though they had been sent up to this particular charge, uh, 300 miles from their closest denominational church. And they were sent because Dr. Stonehouse told them that unless they went, those two little churches would be closed. And Dr. Stonehouse told them that they probably couldn't count on much happening, but he believed there was a ministry there, that God would use them. And so they obediently went. Now, it was tough. I wasn't joking about $40 a week and all the moose meat you could eat. That's about what they were paid. And so Marion ended up having to work at night, at 11 at night till 7 in the morning, six days a week, as a nurse's aide in the Porcupine, South Porcupine General Hospital. She would go off to work about 10.30, come back home about 7.30 in the morning, and that's how they kept themselves in the ministry. Marion was the one, in terms of a vocational support, essentially supported Jim's ministry and her ministry together. And so God used them in such a sacrificial way, even though they were at the end of the world. We often said about my hometown of Timmins that it wasn't the end of the world, but you could see it from there. Uh, and you probably could as you looked at the northern lights and experienced 35 below zero and 12 feet of snow in the winter. You wondered, God, where have you sent us? But in Jim and Marion's ministry in that little tiny town, there ended up being about a half a dozen of us street kids that because of their witness, essentially, would come to an incarnational understanding. I was raised uh, Anglican. We went to church uh, twice a year, whether we needed to or not. Matter of fact, our uh, Anglican priest used to say to us on 
uh, Easter Sunday morning, I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, because I'm sure I won't see most of you again until then. And he was correct. And so I was used to the, the high church, the incense, the antiphonal choir singing back and forth, and was somewhat awed by that. But for me, God was a being out there beyond me. And there was something about Jim and Marion's witness and lifestyle that helped me understand that the God of Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and all the Boam boys, however you want to say that in terms of intonation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was also the God of Jesus who walked among the least, the left, and the lost and had a burden for them. I mentioned that Jim's background was Salvation Army, and so he already had a disposition to those that others would naturally reject. And Jim and Marion decided that they would take the little that God would bring across their path and into their home and see how much God would do with it. I don't have time today to talk about the dozens of young men and women that are now in ministry today and serving in a wide range of denominational and parachurch environments uh, that came in off the streets because of Jim and Marion's ministry. But I can remember so deeply the fact that they rejoiced every time someone came to faith because of the love that they were extended. They understood a theological principle, I think. They, they understood that for most of us, we first needed to know the person before we could embrace the theology about the person. That we first needed to meet the Christ before then we could understand the incredible complex implications of the theology, the orthodoxy behind why the Christ would be so transformational in our lives. And Jim and Marion believed in academic study. Matter of fact, I flunked out of high school and to this day, Dr. Tennant's sitting here, he probably uh, shouldn't say this in front of him, but to this day I still don't have a high school diploma. I flunked out of high school. I was fortunate enough to get into a Bible college be because of Jim and Marion's influence. But Jim and Marion were very much committed to study to show yourself approved unto God, David. Be a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And because of that emphasis, first on the person, and then on the orthodoxy that would produce the orthopraxy of living out a life that would honor Christ, I began to, I think, embrace a call to ministry. I can still remember at one of the East Ontario Conference camps, that night when I came forward and knelt at the altar, sensing a call of God. And Dr. W.J. Stonehouse, he was a little man, he was about five foot two, five foot three tall, but he had the biggest hands that I have ever seen in my life. And he would lay those hands on me, and he would pray down what he called the Shekinah glory of the Most High God. He wanted everyone that was touched by the Lord to somehow by faith experience in advance of the Shekinah that we're all going to see at the marriage supper of the Lamb to experience that. And it was in that context that I felt the confirming presence of the Holy Spirit. I had seen it lived out in Jim and Marion's life, but now I began to embrace it as the witness of the Spirit in my own heart and life. And I watched Jim and Marion celebrate these victories, and it was quite influential. But for me, I would discover the depth of costly discipleship as I would watch them navigate some of the most difficult times in their life. I can remember coming to annual conference and uh, sitting with Jim and Marion and they were deeply distressed 
and that was the conference where the bishop would read the appointments for the next year. And I finally got Jim outside, and I said, Jim, are you okay? And he broke down and began to weep, and he said, oh, David, we've just been told by the bishop that they have no appointment for us. And I said, uh, Jim, how is that possible? And in our denomination at that particular time, while it was an appointment system, the congregations were consulted. And each of the congregations that had an opening had told the bishop very clearly they didn't want Jim and Marion Pointer as their pastors. And when pressed, the bishop very uncomfortably had to say to Jim and Marion, well, Jim, Marion, it's because of the kind of people you bring into the church. They're worried because of your ministry to these runaways and drug addicts and street prostitutes that you're going to have a negative impact on their young people. And so I'm sad to tell you that the stationing committee has no appointment for you. I watched Jim process that. He had essentially given his life to a ministry of transformation, walking, he thought, where Jesus would walk, among the least, the left, and the lost, and discovered that for whatever reasons, that was no longer valued in that particular setting. That was not going to be celebrated. And so they struggled. They left their appointments and didn't know what they were going to do. They moved back into the city of Toronto into a home with one of those drug addicts who had been converted, the Reverend Alex Parachin. He and his wife, he was 16, she was 15. They had a one-year-old child. They were drug addicts on the streets, and Jim and Marion had taken them in, and they had come to faith, and Alex had gone on to Bible college and then seminary and had become a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor and was serving there in the city of Toronto in that greater area, and Jim and Marion moved in to be taken care of by those they had taken care of. Isn't that the way God works? Isn't that an amazing kind of thing that when you invest, you have this understanding that if you cast your bread upon the waters, it doesn't get soggy and sink and fish eat it, it comes back to you in some unplanned, unknown way. Jim and Marion never thought that they would be saints, um, never expected and would be very uncomfortable with the idea of sainthood. But I found for me that as I watched Jim and Marion navigate this first massive crisis in their ministry, a, a crisis of rejection of the very sense of call that they had, that the scripture that they anchored to was Philippians 3.10. Scripture says this, if you know it, Oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. Now, that's the hanky-waving, the hallelujah roundups, the celebrations. But the scripture doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to say that I might also know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, so that I might fully embrace all that Christ did for me in winning a victory by being willing to go through unspeakable suffering. And so Jim and Marion discovered that soon they were called to minister to the Children's Aid Society within the province of Ontario. And they were given the most incorrigible older teens. And one by one, one by one, these incorrigible teens came to Jesus. As a matter of fact, they were so successful in the transformation of these lives that they actually got featured on national television, the CBC television network. And they were sitting there being interviewed about why they had been so successful in taking these young men and women and 
seeing them turned around. And Marion was always the, the tough, direct person of the group. She was the master sergeant, the drill sergeant. She said, well, I'll tell you. We just talked to them about Jesus, and that transforms their lives. Well, there wasn't much arguing with the fruit of that particular ministry. Jim and Marion put in incredibly long hours, and uh, we used to get very concerned about Jim because he was five feet tall and five feet wide. Uh, he was, somebody said, if you're ever looking for Mr. Pointer, he's round in front, very round in front. And he put on a lot of weight and worked this incredible schedule in order to allow Marion to work. He cared for a lot of things. And, and I would say to Jim, Jim, you need to slow down. And he said, Dave, I tell you what, I'd rather burn out than rust out any day. And then we got the telephone call. Jim had had a massive stroke at age 55 and his ministry was cut short. And he was in the hospital. And we would call and he couldn't speak much. He had speech impediment. He was paralyzed on the one side and he wasn't able to talk. Marion was always the, the, the faith-filled one that believed God could do a miracle, but the miracle didn't come. Jim had two or three more strokes. One day they finally came to visit us in our home in Virginia Beach, Virginia. They came down from Toronto and Jim, stumbled in and greeted me, and we used to stay up late at night when I lived with him. Jim loved to have strong tea and fried tomatoes. That was his thing, and burnt toast. And so we had the, the, the repast that night. I brewed some strong tea, four bags in a pot, and gave, burnt the toast, as burnt as I could make it, because he always wanted it burned, and, and fried up the tomatoes. And we sat there, and, and we tried to have a conversation. And Jim would take a sip and it would drip down. He always wore a suit and tie, never, never gave it up. And we would try to engage in conversation and finally he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, David, I can't talk. Go to And he shuffled off. Marion had already gone before him. And um, I went back into the room, Nancy, my wife, was asleep. And I had a crisis in my sense of calling. And I began to cry out to God. I said, God, if this is the kind of God you are, if this is what you do to those who have sacrificed so much, the worst thing Jim could have imagined was to rust out rather than burn out. I'm not sure I want to make that kind of sacrifice. And I sat there, or laid there in the bed, almost shaking, when down the hall I heard Marion say, oh Jim, come to bed. And so she helped him get ready and I could hear the bed squeaking as they kind of settled in and she said, oh Jim, let's pray. And so Marion prayed a little prayer of faith. We lived in a very small home. I could hear most of what she was saying. And then she said, Jim, Let's sing. And I thought, because Jim could hardly speak. And I thought, Marion, you dolt. You insensitive whatever. What are you doing? And she began to sing in the cracks. <laughs> when faith like a river attended my way. She began to sing this wonderful hymn of the church. And she got to the chorus, and she sang, it is well. And then I heard Jim sing back to her, 
your kids? Well, and she sang again, it is well. And Jim sang back to her, it is well. And together they sang, it is well. It is well with my soul. And I don't know what happened that night for me, but it was akin to what I felt when Dr. W.J. Stonehouse laid his hands on my head. There was a fresh, empowering, infilling of the Holy Spirit that was accompanied by an incredible sense that God is on his throne, that he does all things well, that he's the sovereign God, and we'll just trust him as is the message in Hebrews 11. So many are named, many are unnamed, but all of them went through a series of Philippians 3.10 crises. Yes, isn't it wonderful to know God and the power of his resurrection? But somehow we only get to know him deeply in the fellowship of his suffering. When I would visit Jim, I would say, Jim, how are you? And he'd say, oh, good, good. And then he'd say, Jesus, beautiful. And there'd be a glow. Remind me of what the people of Israel must have sensed as Moses came down from off the mountain. There was a glow. Jesus, beautiful. On occasion, Jim and I used to like to bash the church. And uh, I thought we had good cause for that. So I started down that path one day after his stroke, and he said, oh, 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 can't be bothered. David, Jesus, beautiful. And then I'd say, in keeping with our Wesleyan tradition, because we came out of that tradition of mutual accountability, I would say, Jim, how is it with your soul? And he'd look at me with a great smile on his face, and he'd say, it is well, it is well. The good news is that Jim had Marion. She was caring for him. She was the nurse. And then the news came. She had inoperable pancreatic cancer and was not going to survive very long. And I would go and visit Marion. And she was in a great deal of pain, but her faith never wavered. And neither did Jim's. And one of my last conversations with Marion before she died, and again, hearkening back to Philippians 3.10, because in my sense in, in inter interacting with Jim, I, I was getting the feeling that, yes, he was indeed, indeed, getting a glimpse into heaven that was only possible through a veil of tears. That was only possible through participating in the fellowship of his suffering. Now, most of us want to ignore that reality. But many of the saints that we honor across the history of all saints, and again back to Hebrews 11, were people who saw something. You think of Stephen being stoned. And what were the last words of Stephen's life here on this earth? I see the heavens opened. And Perhaps like Jim, he was saying, Jesus, beautiful. Jesus, beautiful. My last time with Marion, 
she was very close to death, but she was still lucid. And I said, uh, Marion, how is it with your soul? And she said, oh, David, I have learned the most profound spiritual lesson. I said, oh, Marion, what is it? What is it? And she said, you know, what I've learned, David, is that Jesus will never be all I need until Jesus is all I have. And right now, David, Jesus is all I have. And you know what? It's enough. It's enough. As we buried Marion and then shortly afterwards buried Jim, I thought of these last two verses of Katie Suffield's hymn. Are you laid aside from service, body worn from toil and care? You can still be in the battle in the sacred place of prayer. And when the conflict here is ended and our race on earth is won, he will say if we are faithful, welcome home, my child, well done. Marion died first, and we buried her. There was no gravestone. Jim died not long afterwards. And Alex, the Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, a 15-year-old who had been saved out of drug addiction, now serving Jesus. And by the way, his wife now is a, is a traveling evangelist across China, seeing thousands of people coming to Christ. It's just an amazing thing that's happened through her ministry. But when we took... Jim's body to the graveyard. A stone had been erected. And it said, Marion Pointer and her years. Jim Pointer, his date of birth, and now his date of death would be carved. And in the middle, only three words. It is well. And so as we bring to conclusion our celebration of All Saints Day, let me just remind you that ultimately, sainthood for most of these people is unintended. Jim and Marion never thought they'd ever be saints. But for me, and for at least 60 others, and through those 60 multiplied thousands, and in Alex and Donna's case, perhaps tens of thousands, have come to know what it means to embrace the incarnated Christ in the lives of those who care. May we, as saints under construction, be able to say, in the glory of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering, it is well. And all of God's people say, amen.